invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. We're going to begin reading at the very end of the chapter, verse 45. We're going to then proceed into chapter 21, verse 4. So it's a very short passage that we are reading. We are uh, going to finish this up this morning. Next week, we'll get into a series, really, from 21.5, really, all the way through the rest of 21, that all deals with uh, the uh, prophecies of Christ, the prophetic ministry of Christ, uh, with regard to um, recent prophecy for Him, as well as uh, the end of the age. And so, for the disciples and their generation... And then for the last generation as well. And so we're going to see that. And so this morning we're going to finish up uh, really this section of narrative. And then get into the prophetic teaching of Christ in the next few weeks. Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 45. And we'll read simply to chapter 21, verse 4. I'll be reading out of the New King James Version. God's Word says, And he looked up. I'm sorry, I started verse 21.1. Verse 45, then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw also a certain poor widow putting in two mites. So he said, truly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all. For all these out of their abundance have put in offerings for God. But she out of her poverty put in all the livelihood that she had. Nothing looks right because I'm in the wrong book of the Bible. I'm in the book of Acts instead of Luke. (laughs) We have come to a portion of Scripture that uh, in its brevity, we can spend some extra time talking about its applications. Uh, We have a warning from, from Jesus as well as a recognition. And that's a pretty strong contrast that we have an opportunity to look at a direct warning where God says, watch out for these specific people, beware. And then he draws his disciples' attention to an example of what true religion, and I'm going to use that term the way it should be used, or true religion is. And that's really the contrast today that we want to investigate is the contrast between true religion and that which is just empty religion or religious practice or ritual without the heart behind it. We have this warning again and again for us throughout Scripture that we are to avoid empty ritualistic activities. And that can be in just about every area of the Christian life. We are warned against ritualistic praying. And so we are called by Christ not to pray as the heathens do, with repetitive statements that have, don't have with them the significance of thought. And one of the saddest tragedies is when we take uh, instruction on prayer and make it exactly what it was supposed to tell us not to do and make it a ritualistic prayer. Or we can say the words without really even cognitively engaged in what they mean. And this is true in every facet of our worship. Whether it be our singing, and we are told to lift that up, your voices up, out of hearts filled with thanksgiving and joy, that we are then to lift our voices in praise to God. And judging by some singing, there isn't a lot that we're thankful for or joyful about. 
We are more concerned about our self and what people think of us or what they will think of our voice or lack thereof. And less concerned about what God thinks about our silence. In our study of the Word, how easy it is to come to God's Word feigning interest. When I encounter people who say, oh, I read the Bible, but it's kind of boring to me, um, then there's something wrong there in your heart, not just in your mind. Uh, these words are, are, are life. These words are power. And there's something more significant than just something wrong that you don't understand the, what the words mean, that we have not become students of the Holy Spirit to teach us and train us in its truth. But really, we come to God's Word looking for it to agree with us instead of looking to agree with it. A conversation this week with my kiddos and just saying, if you, can't, if you don't open the Bible with a willingness to change your beliefs, you're wasting your time. Because you're coming at it with a wrong heart. We must, every time we open God's Word come to it with a willingness, a readiness even, to change our beliefs. Why? Because it is certain that all of us carry within our belief systems things that are not biblical. And so when we open God's Word, even religious ideas, when we open God's Word to read, if we are going to really come to it with a genuineness, we're going to come to it with a willingness to conform and change our belief systems to God's Word. That demands a very dramatic heart and attitude shift for many who take up God's Word to read it. And so, when we're going to address one area of the Christian life specifically today, it does not mean that God's Word is only interested in that area or that we are only interested in that area in this church uh, the area here is our giving that we're going to address this morning. But don't let that be isolated area of our life. Every area of our activity of worship, which should be from about midnight, this is when worship starts, about midnight on any given day till about 11.59 p.m. on any given night. That gives you one minute for yourself, right? Well, you, you should be sleeping. In, a minute. in other words, it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, is your act of worship. It's not just this hour and 20 minutes or so that we have here together, sometimes hour and a half. Maybe if you're lucky, you get your money's worth and we actually go an hour and 40 minutes. But you usually get ripped off, so you get cheated out of those that time. Our worship is an extension, this worship hour, this service of worship should just be an extension of a life of worship. And this Jesus brings to light. In this evaluation, sitting at the temple where there is supposedly nothing but worship going on and giving a critical review of the activity going on there. A critical review isn't always negative. We often think of the word critical as negative, but a critical review simply means an honest review. Let's really look at what's going on and examine it. And this we hope to do this morning. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we look into His Word. Lord God, we do again come before You asking for You to work in our midst knowing that we are not deserving of it, so we beg your grace and mercy toward us. We pray for your spirit to have liberty, both in the what is spoken, but also liberty in our hearts to receive that which we hear. And Lord, we also recognize that while your work 
to convict and encourage and challenge us is faithful. That even if the word of God spoken this morning, that it still falls upon us to respond, to surrender our will to your truth. And Lord, our prayers that you might find such receptive wills that are moldable by your Spirit. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have just had Christ finish his question and answer time with the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, um, we find him engaging them on the Temple Mount. We are in Jerusalem. We are really into the Passion Week. We are coming near to the time of the cross. Things are going to happen very quickly, um, not in our sermon series, because we have this extensive prophetic uh, ministry of Christ we want to get into in chapter 21. But uh, we're going to go very quickly in chapter 22 and following through the Passion Week and and uh, we're going to be familiar with it, and the pace of everything is going to quicken in the book. Uh, we're going to take this time here, here on the Temple Mount, we begin to re- recognize how it is that Jesus is garnering such a crowd of enemies. He is more than happy, he is willing and forthright in declaring in the hearing of everyone the truth about everyone. And so we have them trying to catch him in error. And they, of course, fail miserably and are quieted. He then challenges them with some biblical truth that brings into question their view of who the Messiah is or should be. And their unwillingness to engage him betrays the fact that they are not looking really for the Messiah. They really don't want things to change. They want things to progress as they are because they are self-satisfied that they are the spiritual leadership of Israel and that what they're doing is right. And it's working out pretty well for them. They have authority. They have wealth. uh, And like many of Israel's In days gone by, when the prophets talked to, um, they were on the beneficial side of their religious practice. But in God's estimation of their religion, like the Old Testament prophets, Jesus attacks this singular area. And that is that God's measure, God's real measure of your worship, boils down to one of two areas that gives us the clearest evidence of the reality of your faith corporately. I'm not talking about the individual, although certainly the individual is involved here, but of a nation, of a people, like a nation Israel, people like the church. How do we measure ourselves? And he calls upon what the Old Testament prophets called upon, and that was that God's going to condemn you and judge you because of your mistreatment of people. Your mistreatment specifically of those who are poor, those who are fatherless, those who are widows. That's the examination that God makes. How do we measure a church? How do we measure a people of God? How do we measure a nation? And God has done it consistently way back in the Old Testament. He's going to do it consistently forward for us by measuring it by how do we treat the fatherless, the widows, the poor, the maimed? How do we care for those who struggle to care for themselves as a society? And Jesus is no different here as a prophet of God, the prophet, capital P. And he once again addresses this very area. Verse 45 of Luke chapter 20, we want to notice who's listening. He's talking to his disciples, but he makes sure he does it in the hearing of all the people. In other words, 
he's looking at the 12, but he makes sure he's talking loud enough on the Temple Mount that everyone can hear him. Because the warning that he has is a warning not just to the 12. Not to just say, now when you set up the church, make sure you don't get caught in this same mistake, but rather the warning is to all of Israel. The warning is to all those who call themselves, I am one of God's people. This warning stands that as long as this is the circumstance, God is not pleased with you as a people. Certainly among all the people who are listening are the Sadducees, are the scribes, are the chief priests, are the Pharisees, as well as a host of people from all over Israel. This is Passover week. They have pilgrimage there from all over the country. This is, one of, this is the fullest time on the Temple Mount this week. So when we talk about Christ speaking to make sure that everyone heard this, he didn't whisper this in a corner of the temple. He is proclaiming it probably in Solomon's colonnade, which is the main entry area as you come in to the, to the mount there. And it is very active, full of people. And this is his warning, beware. Who are you to beware of? Who as a people group are you to be watching out for, to be careful with, to be critical and examining of, to be cautious? He says, beware of scribes who desire to go around long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the best places at feasts, and make long prayers. I skipped one little section because we're going to get to that here in a little bit. We have this list of things and we say, okay, we're supposed to watch out for the people who are walking around and being the most pious. We're supposed to watch out for the people who are being uh, the most religious. They're doing these, these prayers. They go around in long robes. They're the ones that everyone lifts up as examples. They're in the synagogue every Saturday, every Sabbath. They're there. They're the ones who are reading God's word. They're the ones that are there at the feasts of Israel and, and uh we miss some of that. We, we really should celebrate more of Israel's holidays because they're almost all feasts. And so when the, when the big national holidays come, there they are. They're in the prominent places of these, of these not just national things, but religious activities. These are all signifying God's deliverance and God's working, God's provision for them as a people. And so these are the ones that we would pick out and say, well, these are the leaders of our people religiously. These are the pastors and the deacons and the Bible teachers. These are those that we were supposed to look up to. These are the examples we're supposed to emulate. And here Christ says, watch out for them. Beware them. And this is true not only for Israel, pre-church, which is where we are, but the same instruction is given to the church later on in the epistles. Warning after warning comes in God's Word to the church about leadership. Who's leading whom? And you go through Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1 and 2 3 John, Jude, Little dinky Jude is only one chapter long. And Revelation. I skipped one book, I know. It was Philemon, because there isn't a warning in Philemon, believe it or not. That's the only one. Every single one of them warns you about false teachers. Those who establish themselves as someone to be followed, someone whose teaching is to be heard, someone whose life is to be emulated, and these people establish themselves in front of God's people, and we are told, watch out, beware. And we are given descriptions of how to identify those individuals that we need to be very careful of. And among them is that they really, their motivation is personal. 
That is, they're really looking out for themselves and their own interests. Paul goes to great extent to talk about the fact that they are doing this for their belly's sake, or they're doing this for financial gain. Um, they're doing this uh, to do injury, really, to the work of God instead of a benefit to it. And we find these motives and the revelation of how do we examine the motives of a man's heart. And again, it comes down to how is he going to treat those who can't care for themselves? Those who cannot repay him. Those who cannot benefit him in any way. How will he treat them? How will you as a church treat those who... You don't foresee anything in return. The fatherless, the widows, the poor. And this is the examination. This is the evidence of a people who are truly righteous. Leadership that is truly righteous. In verse 47, we find this evidence. Yes, we have all the flowing robes. We have all the important people know them. They're greeted in the marketplace. They have the prominent places in the synagogues and in the feasts. They make long prayers. And by the way, we also find in verse 21, verse 1, that they have lots of money to put in the treasury of the temple. But there's this one phrase that condemns them. It's the evidence that all the rest of what they're doing is worthless. They devour widows' houses. They're willing to walk on the backs of the weak, of the, of the most vulnerable in society to establish their own wealth and their own house, if you will. And they have no qualms about it. That these are who are in, in grave jeopardy in many instances, instead of extending their resources to them, are actually drawing from them. Knowing that a widow wasn't capable of caring for the farm, if you will, this an agrarian society, knowing that the widow was generally not able to care for the business end of things in that society particularly, they took advantage of it. Knowing that she was desperate. And the, the evidence here is this is a widow that had no other family members that could care for her. And we find one walking right into the temple right at that time, by God's providence. Here comes a poor widow. Who is trusting not in the leadership of her religious community. They're not helping her. She has but a couple of pennies to her name. But she's going to have to trust in God because there is no help in her society like there should be. The law requires that she be taken care of. And by the way, that law hasn't changed really for the church. It still requires it of us. We find in the New Testament the responsibility to care for widows, that that falls on the children of those widows, that if those children are either incapable, unwilling because of their godlessness, or um, aren't there at all because she didn't have children or they're too young, then it falls upon the church body to care for those needs. Today, the same indictment can be made for the same reasons as evidence of an empty faith. It says we will practice religion but without a heart that is religious, without a heart that is tuned to God. We can do all this external things and still 
not really care about the well-being of those who are vulnerable in our society. In fact, even take advantage of them. They say, oh, pastor, we don't take advantage of orphans and widows and the poor. We don't take advantage of them. Not at all. Our society has been built on taking advantage of them. Do you really think all the people at the casino can afford the casino? It takes advantage of whom? Not people with lots of disposable income. Yes, there are some there like that. But it's the people who are sure that that's their way out of the financial troubles that they've gotten themselves into. Every credit card company is taking advantage of the poor who can't afford things, so we go into debt for them. Every banker is doing it. Our society is, is full of it. Even our government itself. And the church has fallen right in line. And we do not establish a basis for them to succeed, but rather to fail. And we simply keep garnishing the interest off of their failure. Every foreclosed home in our country today is an indictment against us as a society. That we are taking advantage of those who should not be taken advantage of, but rather cared for. Now, does a person who goes into debt have some responsibility? Certainly. Absolutely. But to impoverish the poor even further by lending them money that you know they can't repay is devouring widows' houses. And we've been doing that in our country, and we wonder why we're in such a horrible place. But our churches are doing much the same. We obviously see in the telemarketers and that group of people, and we hear the accounts and the, and the evidence of them taking from the poor to build extravagant, elaborate places of worship, to drive around in extravagant vehicles, to live in extravagance. And we need to understand the end of verse 47 with their respect to them. The worst hell is waiting for them. These will receive greater condemnation. People often ask me, do you think there's degrees of judgment and degrees of reward in heaven and in hell or in lake of fire? And by this statement alone, you'd have to say there are degrees of God's judgment for eternity. And we often think that the ones that are going to get the worst are the Hitlers out there and the, and the serial killers and the, uh, those, those bad criminals. They're the ones that are going to really get a bad, bad, the worst kind of hell. But from what I can tell in God's Word, the very worst is reserved for those who pretend, pretend to be religious, who know the truth of God's Word, who have it readily before them on their lap, in their language, so they can read it at any time of their disposal, and who participate in false worship and do not have a righteous relationship with God and teach others to follow. That kind of an example of empty worship. God says they have a greater condemnation waiting them. The worst kind of sinner isn't out there in our prisons. The worst sinner in heaven's view is in our churches. You want to go find those who have the worst hell waiting for them? You need to go out to places of worship in this valley, not to our criminal justice system. That's where they are. None of these guys, none of these scribes would be found in jail. Not one of them. <laughs> None of these would be found down in the pokey on Friday night after the DWI stop. Do they have a pokey still? I don't know. 
Okay, we'll just say they do. They certainly have a wagon, I think, or something like that. None of these guys are going to be found down there. They're not going to be found in the red light districts. Oh, of course not. These are the self-righteous scribes. And they're the ones in the Temple Mount, in the high places, in the most important positions, and God says the worst condemnation is waiting for them. The worst sinners on the planet are in church this morning. When we let that start to sink in, we begin to understand what was going on with Jesus at the Temple Mount that day. He is in the highest place of worship in all all Israel. There were synagogues all over the Roman Empire um, where they could open God's Word and read it, but they're at the Temple. They're on the Temple Mount. He is there in the place of worship during the week of worship, Passover week, the highest week, really, of Israel's worship calendar. Here he is, and he's looking around at the most important people in the place, and he's saying, they're the worst sinners in this whole country, in this whole land, on this whole planet. There they are. They all receive greater condemnation. They knew the truth, but they didn't submit to that truth. They even claim perfect knowledge of it. They memorize incredible portions of Scripture and try to adhere to it to the letter, and yet also try to use that same knowledge to try to avoid keeping the spirit of it. So the first evidence was, do they care for, genuinely care for, those who cannot necessarily care for themselves, who are on the fringes of society and, and in fact, are in danger, not building wealth on their poverty, but rather using their wealth to meet their needs. We have an example of that we've already studied. His name was Zacchaeus. Now there was a real criminal. By by Israel's standards, he was a tax collector. He was a Roman sympathizer, remember? He was the guy everyone looked down to, not Zacchaeus. You're going to his house? Come on. Yeah, here is a man who did right. Restored those people what he had taken, and then help the poor. This was true, and and Christ's statement was, this was true faith. Verse 1 of chapter 21 tells us that not only was there a widow coming up, but the wealthy were there too. In Israel, you gave at the temple, and there was an interesting way of collecting. We have a little box out here. I I guess if you brought in a lot of change and dropped in one at a time, you might get our attention. Um, but that's essentially what they did. They brought in their shackles or, or denarii, whatever they brought in, and um, there would be a collection basin there. Uh, many people believe it was brass or bronze. At any rate, it was metal. And uh, when you drop metal into metal, it makes a noise. Now, there's lots of ways to do that, aren't there? Um, you can do it clunk. Or you can make sure it goes clang, 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 clang. And that's what they were known for doing. Was for They wouldn't just drop it in as a lump sum down in the middle. They would actually just kind of like that. So everyone would tell them, I said, wow, somebody's giving a lot of money. Ooh. Listen to all that. They're giving their gifts in the treasury. And all the attention that comes to them from that. From all the people saying, wow, Jesus is here. I think that was, oh my. Aren't we blessed to have him? And then comes the widow, the poor widow, who shouldn't have been this poor. And she has a couple of pennies that she slips up, quietly drops in. Christ is sitting there watching with his disciples. He sees her put in her two mites, her two pennies. 
And he knows something because he is Almighty God. He knows something about her, but that's everything she's got. She has got food for the day, and this is it. Now, we don't live like this. We think it's a big deal if you live paycheck to paycheck. Oh, and we hear that statement in American economics, right? How many Americans are living paycheck to paycheck as if they're on the brink of disaster in their life? Um, We are about the only society that thinks that's disastrous, living paycheck to paycheck. Many cultures I've visited live day to day. In Port-au-Prince, you see people and they don't necessarily know they have food tomorrow. They're very careful today. They're not sure they have work tomorrow. They have work today and they're going to be very careful. And and, um, we were there and we had a crew there working and the job wasn't finished. They were going to finish it the next day. It was two-thirds of the way done. And there was some discussion between the two Haitian pastors and the contractor, the, the boss man of this group, and they were discussing it, and it got pretty heated, and it was going on for quite a while, and, and I thought they were arguing over the amount of the contract, because that has been established, so I thought they were arguing about how much pay, but they weren't. The discussion was, we need some money today, because these men haven't eaten. So even though the job isn't done, can you pay us half and we'll come back and do the other third of the work tomorrow? And the trouble was the pastors had not brought the money with them. See, I don't carry the money. As soon as I get into the country, I hand the money over to the nationals and say, here, I don't want to have to be responsible for that. Um, And uh, they hadn't brought it with them. And it was a big, big problem. And so we fed them. <laughs> we just went out and bought food for all of them. It didn't help their families much, though. So the next day we were sure to pay them. That's the way most of the world lives. Over 85, 90% of the world lives one day. We think we're suffering if we live paycheck to paycheck which is usually one or two or four weeks. See, our idea of what is poverty is very different than the rest of the world. This gal came in and gave what she had left that day. She had nothing for tomorrow. She was trusting God to care for her. And this is a concept that is radical and very foreign to us. The idea of giving in such a circumstance. In fact, we would say in financial counseling circles, and I've heard them say it, well, you're too poor to give, and my contention is no such poverty exists. No such poverty exists. I've been in some of the poorest churches in the world, and I see them give. It might be rice. That might be all they have. And Pastor Reddy gives a a description of the giving that when they make the rice for their family, they take one handful out and they set it in this. And they do that each meal, one handful out, and set it in there. So they make it for everybody, and then once a day, one handful out. And on Sunday, that bowl of rice goes to church. And somehow in our financial counseling, we're sure that we're too poor to give. And my contention is, the real problem is, we're too rich in our giving. That is, we give what the world would think of as a substantial amount, but percentage-wise, it's very little of what we really have. Now, I'm not going to get into the discussion, well, do I give out of my net or do I give out of my gross or do I, you know, do I give out of this? Do I give? You know, if you're counting like that, your heart's already wrong. You're a Pharisee. That's how the Pharisees were. They even counted grains. 
to make sure they didn't give too much. They counted grains. They counted the smallest amount of spices and they portioned it out to make sure they didn't give more than than the tithe of it. You see, that kind of giving is what Christ is condemning here. It is the reckless kind of giving that this poor widow did. And in our view, it was reckless because what is she going to do tomorrow? But she says she's given the most today because she gave everything she had. The greatest giver on the Temple Mount there wasn't the one that went clank, 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 with all that silver dropping into there. No. The one who gave the most had those two little copper coins and dropped them in quietly. But she was the greatest giver in the midst because she fully trusted in the Lord. If I have a $100,000 bank account and I come here and give you give $1,000, I have not done much, have I? Have I? Have I? The church might say, oh boy, we need givers like that. And then someone comes in here that made $20 this week, bought food, and I say $20 a week, maybe, bought food, and the rest is here. The greatest giver is not the person with 100000 that gave 1000 that was 1%. The greatest giver was the one that gave 100% of everything they had left. That's how God measures it. The person with 100000 gives 10000 and the church goes, Wow, what are we going to do with this? How exciting. They still have 90000 left. The person with $20 came in and gave it all. How much do they have left? Nothing. This is what it means to trust in the Lord. To give in that attitude of the heart. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and claim to be that kind of a giver. I'm not. Quite honestly, I'm not. But this is the heart that Christ points to. Is that facet, whether it's the giving, the singing, our Bible reading, our praying our church attendance, any facet of our worship, if it is of that nature, it is not acceptable to God. It is this abandonment. It is this full disclosure. It is this full giving of ourselves. Lord, everything that I am, everything that I have is Yours. To trust You with my livelihood is a small thing. Because I've already trusted you with the greater thing. The greater thing is my salvation, my eternal state. If you believe God can take care of you forever and ever and ever in heaven, it's a small thing to believe He can take care of you here on earth. Isn't it? You see, the Pharisees and the scribes and They didn't really believe God could take care of their sin. First of all, they didn't believe they had any because they were self-righteous. So they thought they would take care of their sin by doing these religious activity. And in the end, they end up more condemned than when they started. And here this poor widow comes in. (laughs) Easy to overlook her. She's certainly not gonna. We're not gonna be able to build the temple based upon giving like hers, right? Quantity-wise. And Christ says, "That's the one. That's your example, disciples. Follow her. Follow her. The one." that these are willing to take advantage of to build their own wells so they can come in here and clank, 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 clank ill-gotten money. It's not who God's pleased with. The one that pleased God was the one that came in with a heart of abandonment and said, Lord, I'm trusting you with everything. It's trusting you with 
financial things or material things, trusting you with my time, trusting you with my energies, trusting you with my occupation, trusting you with all of these things, that's a small thing. Because I've already trusted you with the greatest thing. You trusting you to take care of my sin. I'm trusting you for my eternity. This is real faith. And so here on the Temple Mount, we had the greatest sinners on the planet standing next to them was the greatest saint. Solomon described this in Ecclesiastes when he described the condition of a city that was about to be taken. And he said, the king didn't know what to do. The wealthy simply wrung their hands and said, oh, it's all gone. And one poor wise man saved the city. But when it was all over, in his wisdom, he, he figured out a way to deliver the city from destruction. He said in the end, everybody forgot him. For one reason, because he was poor. In our churches, I think that that is still the case. We forget the wisdom of these that God calls us to care for. And churches say we aren't really counting them because they don't add to our treasury. I once had a pastor talk to me about my congregation. Not This one is actually a charity. When I was at charity as a young pastor, and he asked this evaluation on my church, how many giving units do you have? And that is, in the church growth models, that is one of the ways you measure the success of your church, how many giving units do you have? And I said, do you mean positive or negative giving units? He says, what do you mean? I says, well, there are some families in our church that we have to help. You mean those? You see, he measures success by how many giving units you have meaning how much you had to fund your church. I think sometimes God evaluates success of a church by how many giving units we have. How many are we caring for? Our children are showing us the way in that area in this church. Our children's club supports four orphans in India. And they're doing a banner job of it. They have enough support for those four orphans for like six years already. Something like that, huh? So they're ready to take on, I don't know, like ten others or something. <laughs> I don't know, the sky's the limit with these kids. I don't know, it's, it's crazy. It's incredible. But those are the giving units churches should be interested in. Not how many family members are, or family units are putting money in the plate, but maybe the real measure of a successful church is how many are being cared for out of that plate. Very different perspective God has on the economy of church than us, huh? than how we've been raised. And yet this is the evidence of a real faith versus a hypocritical faith. It really isn't saving at all. One wants to enrich themselves. True faith wants to enrich others. One is concerned about how they appear. The other one only is concerned about how God appears. And so, on the Temple Mount, the worst sinners... and the best saint side by side. And you and I would have shaken hands. You and I would have chosen to invite to our house the worst sinner instead of the best saint. Because that's human nature. And God calls us to a radically different view of man and of worship.
And I pray that that becomes a model for our church. We have tried to put it out there and put it forward and tried to exemplify that in the leadership in our church. We've tried to do that in the ministries of our church. And I think some of the greatest things, in my view, have happened here in the last two years. You want to know what they were? In my view, some of the greatest ministry events financially in our church was when we stopped charging kids for Word of Life clubs. That was huge in my mind. We said, oh, you don't need to bring a dollar a week. It's free. We'll pay for all your materials. We pay for everything. That was huge. Because of that, I know of at least two families whose children were here this past year. When you voted to send 20000 and then another 10000 to Haiti, that was huge. It's in the right direction. And then, like I said, our children and their ministering and their desire to minister, um, these are the evidences of a real faith that says, you know what? We've got this. It might not be a done building, and it might not be the prettiest thing in Albuquerque, but it's a whole lot better than the canopy that the church in Haiti is meeting under in the middle of tropical storms. We can spend some money there. And for crying out loud, we got air conditioning. Um, and we can live with what we have here. This is what real faith, this is what pleases God. And that pleasure of God um, is our highest calling. Does it get us long robes and fancy places and and long titles and high greetings and and, uh, all of that? No. But that's okay because I really don't want to sign up for the greater condemnation that awaits those. So I want to challenge you this morning. We make sure that in this congregation, there are not any of these worst sinners on the planet. Evaluate our own hearts, our own minds. Make sure that we have that same abandonment, almost recklessness toward, in our faith towards God. That kind of radical faith is what God has been calling us to throughout the Gospel of Luke. That without this, you cannot be my disciple.